Welcome back to Archaeopolitics, a podcast about politics in the world of Harry Potter. I'm Erin. I'm Adri. And we're two recovering English majors. Today, we'll be discussing the politics of power. In Chapter 17, The Man with Two Faces of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone by J.K. Rowling. which is the episode where we discuss the last chapter of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone by J.K. Rowling. I'm so excited. But before we dive deeper into the politics we've been di- we're going to be discussing today, Erin, give us your summary, please. Oh my gosh, the last chapter summary recap for the book one, All the Feels. So in chapter 17, it's revealed to us that Harry meets Professor Quirrell after passing through the final test. In typical villain fashion, Quirrell tells Harry everything. Like, this is always the Achilles heel of every villain. And it was, in fact, he who tried to knock him off his broom during the Quidditch match, not Snape. And that uh, Snape had been trying to, in fact, save him from Quirrell's antics. So, you know, politics of conspiracy theories turned on its head. Harry's shocked. Um, bound by robes that Quirrell casts upon him, Harry realizes that he's attempting to understand the mirror of Irised. And so in an attempt to distract him from figuring out how the mirror works, Harry starts to blurt out all these questions. And Quirrell reveals that Snape uh, does in fact hate him. So that's confirmed at least. Like, yes, (laughs) Snape in fact hates Harry. Um, And it's because Snape and his father went to school together and there was this rift. Um, between the two of them, which we're going to learn so much more about. Um, So while, you know, Quirrell sort of dribbles on about his master, Harry attempts to see himself in the mirror because, of course, he understands how it works. And he's hoping to see his innermost desire at that moment, which is, of course, to find the stone before Quirrell does. He then hears a voice in his head and Quirrell pleads for help understand, pleads for help in trying to understand uh, the mirror and this like crazy voice comes out of nowhere like use the boy use the boy so standing in front of the mirror harry sees his reflection wink and the stone gets dropped into his pocket uh he lies to quarrel about it says he sees himself like shaking hands with dumbledore in the future but the voice comes back says that he's lying quarrels attacks him harry basically like melts him with his hands and you know, he loses consciousness and we wake up in Madame Pomfrey's and it's like this like tell-all scene while Dumbledore like answers vaguely some questions while evading others. And it ends with Harry and Hermione and Ron all catching up and uh, Gryffindor wins the House Cup and it ends with Harry uh, traveling back to the Dursley's house from King's Cross. Oh, thank you so much for that recap, Eric. Okay, so we're talking about the politics of power. Power. Some people want it, other people see it as a corrupting influence. But what makes power so seductive and polarizing at the same time? Is it that we understand that when a person occupies a position of privilege, they cannot be trusted to have the best interest of everyone in mind? When we talk about power structures, we talk about how power is distributed in a government, an organization, and even a social setting. So, 
Erin, let's talk about what power means to you in your life. Well, when I think about power, uh, I agree with you. I think a lot about paradigms and hierarchies, but I also think about empowerment. So for example, Voldemort seeks power and uses others like Quirrell to help him get power. He quite literally uses him um, by attaching himself to the back of his head. Lovely. But Harry is empowered by his mother's love. It's her love for him that empowers others uh, like Ron and Hermione to realize their own potential. So um, I think there's a lot to talk about in this chapter with regards to power and empowerment. What about you, Adriana? Well, as a woman, I've noticed that the desire to thrive and be empowered is not viewed as positively as my male counterparts who openly seek power and empowerment. So power and our perceptions of power and empowerment do not exist in a vacuum. There have been instances where I've been told by women to just shut up and take whatever is given to me to be less myself. Uh, So... I'm very ambitious and I want to not necessarily accrue power, but feel empowered. And sometimes that is a problem for male or female people in society to see a woman wanting to be empowered and have a seat at the table. I love this. I think we have a lot of overlapping um, themes that we want to touch upon and relative to empowerment and it being perhaps threatening to others to see anyone i think in this position of of empowered like an empowered state a self-confident state um like we've talked about this before adriana we're both commander types and so i think we um are pretty vocal i guess but for others i think um maybe it's harder to seek empowerment and i i I, i'm thinking specifically about neville who at the end of this chapter is rewarded you know by Dumbledore for standing up to his friends when he thought that they were doing something wrong and the courage that it took to do that. So I love this idea too of um, people who um, come into positions of power through ways that maybe we wouldn't typically associate with power-seeking individuals. That's poorly stated, but I think you get the gist of it. Well, in the chapter, I think that we see power operating in a lot of ways. We see um, the power structure operating at Hogwarts. For example, Dumbledore is the headmaster and his power is significant enough to hush a room just by entering. His power is also enough to secure a visit with Harry when others cannot. Power comes with certain privileges, but also responsibilities, right? So after this, Harry occupies a new, if not fleeting, position of power of Hogwarts for his adventures in securing the Sorcerer's Stone and, you know, saving the Wizarding World once again from Voldemort. <laughs> um, even the Sorcerer's Stone itself is an artifact of power that is scheduled to be destroyed for the good of the Wizarding community, which kind of connotes this idea of that something powerful can also be dangerous. Um Voldemort seeks power. Quirrell wants to be part of the power. And sometimes in the quest for power, we overlook potential flaws, i.e. Voldemort cannot touch Harry. And that is something that he had not allowed for in his quest for power. So that kind of power was blinding to him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know, and it's. I think it's all in who wields the power, right? That's what we always talk about. It's it's all in 
whose hand whose hand is ultimately wielding that power and you know i think about the way that power shows up in different ways too in this chapter like obviously you know with voldemort greed consumes him the need to you know be superior consumes him but dumbledore sort of bestows this power in knowledge and we've talked about this throughout the entire book this focus on experiential knowledge versus just book smarts and you know hogwarts and how they approach teaching and learning and i think that at the end you know by chapter 17 we kind of realize that dumbledore has been teaching the trio just enough to take on Voldemort by the end of this chapter and that's I think what I want to talk about with with empowerment you know um was it yeah that, yeah I'll end there those are my thoughts for now <laughs> on that <laughs> well let's take a small step back and talk about um how the structure of the muggle and wizarding world begin to reveal itself to us in this chapter I'll start I think that this chapter not only reminds us that Hogwarts and the Wizarding World has its power structures just like the Muggle world, it also, it, it just it just humbles us into thinking, wow, even in a magical world, there are power structures and hierarchies and you have Dumbledore as the headmaster and he's, and he's in control just like a headmaster would be in the Muggle world. So... You know, even though the magical world has its elements that are, you know, fantastical, it also has a structure that is familiar to us. Oh, totally. I mean, yes. Like by the end of the chapter, what I love is that, you know, Harry's going back to the Dursley's house and he's joking with Ron and Hermione about how the Dursley's and Dudley in particular doesn't know about the rule that he can't use magic outside of Hogwarts. And it's the reveal that the muggle world is, you know, being completely unawares of the wizarding world at, at large, doesn't understand the rules and boundaries. And I think the way the, the wizarding world doesn't understand the rules and boundaries and laws that happen in the muggle world. And so it's so interesting to see these worlds collide now that Harry, you know, like Hermione, occupies both. And so I'm interested to see how uh, those two kind of interact with each other as the series goes on. Oh, definitely. That's that's a really good point. Let's go into our deep dives. So for me, this is okay. So I my deep dive um, comes when Quirrell is again having like word vomit and telling Harry everything about his nefarious plan. I love, I love this Achilles heel that villains have. I mean, it's so predictable, but it's also hilarious, you know? And so he's telling him, quote, I met him when I traveled around the world, a foolish young man. I was then full of ridiculous ideas about good and evil. Lord Voldemort showed me how wrong I was. There is no good and evil. There is only power and those too weak to seek it. So Voldemort, you know, tries to be disruptive to this binary of good versus evil. And again, I like these, I like these disruptive arguments that channel, that challenge these black and white arguments, these binaries, but um, for him to say, you know, there's no good or evil, 
Um, there's just, you know, those, there's just power and those that are too weak to seek it. In Coral's own quest to be powerful, he fails to realize that Voldemort is preying upon his own weakness, you know, and that Coral will never actually ultimately be in his own empowered state, if you will, because his, the power that he seeks um, is the kind that looks to stomp over others. And I think that there, there's a, a, a true flaw in that kind of power. Oh, definitely. So what you're saying is, if I'm, you know, listening correctly, is that empowerment seeks to help others while power seeks to stomp on others. Yes, exactly. Um, so, but what makes, like, maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm just always assuming that, like, ambition is not a bad trait, you know? Um... I would know, and I don't think it is. But it is, but it is treated as a bad trait in the texts. Oh, okay. Well, but yes, okay, to the extreme, right? I mean, and and I guess that's also a kind of binary too, because Harry is also ambitious. You know, we 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 learn this whenever he first gets under the Sorting Hat. It, you know, it recognizes Harry's desire to prove himself, right? Um. But it's not enough, right? The ambition isn't overridden by, say, or tempered by other feelings, like um, maybe like the need to connect with others or, you know, to have friendship. So like Voldemort's ambition taken to the extreme is like the cautionary tale. Yes. And you're right. Like it is thrust in a very, in a rather damning light in this text. <laughs> I mean, at the same time, yeah, like, at the same time, I see, like, someone like Hermione Granger is ambitious in an academic way, right? Coming back to power as knowledge, yeah. And that's that's treated a little bit differently, but the way that, yeah, but then this idea that power corrupts and um, the type of power that you seek is corrupt is kind of interesting to me to look at. It's definitely a children's book because it's a little bit reductive in the way that it talks about power in this book, right? Like later, I think it becomes a little bit more nuanced, like that conversation about power. But um, I'm not entirely convinced that all power corrupts. Same. No, same. The kind of power that stomps out others is the kind of power that Voldemort seeks to yield because it's the kind of power that would cast him as superior and oppress others and that's ultimately the kind of power that he wants right is to have dominion over others so that's the whole idea behind this idea of like the superior magical race too right that there's always these hierarchies these social hierarchies that are very real that um would cast him above all and become godlike a deity and then hence his followers right these dark uh these dark marked followers yeah and i think just like that idea of exceptionalism and power uh that that's the kind of power that people who feel powerless and out of control seek right so if you feel 
powerless and neglected and out of control, you seek to overpower others in order to fill a void within yourself. But that that void will never be filled by that power. And that's the kind of power that corrupts because that void is never filled. So you're always searching for more and more power over others. And that's the kind of ambition that hurts. Exactly. And and that perfectly captures why I chose this quote. You, you articulated it so much better than I did, because it's, again, this idea of casting a certain kind of power and those too weak to seek it. So immediately creating a binary between what, like, this Darwinian kind of approach to, you know, you have to you have to beat down others in order to get ahead yourself. Yeah, definitely. And then you. I don't know, this kind of this kind of power dynamics makes me also think about politicians, um, mm-hmm. which like politicians don't necessarily aim to gain power, but power is definitely what they get when they are elected officials in our country and at different levels. Right. So there's a like a paradigm, a paradigm of power and like a structure of power um, politically. And sometimes there are people who are better suited to that power than other people, right? As we can see with our current political situation, which is very heartbreaking. (laughs) Um, But I've heard this over and over again, especially because of, you know, Hillary Clinton's nomination was like, oh, she's so ambitious. She's always been ambitious. I'm like, don't you kind of want that in your leader? Because, like, she's been prepping right, for this right. her entire life. Like, are you saying that's a bad thing? Is it because she's a woman? Is it because ambition is oftentimes seen as a bad trait for women? Yeah, well, power is definitely gendered. And I think we see that in a lot of, I think we can even look to pop culture to look at that. If we look at history of, you know, films, it's 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 rare that you see um women in positions of power and men that maybe fall underneath that right i i love the first episode of glow on netflix when the main character is trying out for that audition and she gives this really impassioned monologue at, at the end of the cut the director's like you know you read you read the male's line you, know, you read the man's line and she's like oh I'm so did i do that i'm so sorry and they retake and they ask her to read the female line and it's a secretary, you know, she's and her only line is, um, you know, can I get you some coffee? That's the one line after delivering this like really impassioned, powerful monologue, you know, oh, we, that was the male's line. In fact, you know, you're typecast as, as the secretary. And so I definitely think that you're picking up on a larger discourse of how power is gendered. Yeah, no, definitely power is gendered in our perceptions of who should get that power um even even subconsciously because like I, I i fucking hate like this argument that people you seem to be using all the time about women which is well you know they have cycles and like their hormones and they're not in control of their feelings and blah blah, blah. And i'm like yeah but have you met any fucking man like they are never in control of their feelings right and because we've more or less socialized them to repress all of those feelings they're even you know more heightened i guess i would say they're fragile like you know like yeah and i'm not saying hashtag 
not all men, but like whatever. I don't give a fuck anymore. Like, <laughs> like people like put all of these prescriptions on women and women of color, and we're not out there saying like, well, hey, uh, guys, like hashtag not all women, and they don't even care. So I don't care about the hashtag not all men. Yeah, I'm with you. No, I'm totally with you on that, dude. All right, so I'm going to segue into my quote, and then we can just continue talking about power anyway. (laughs) So my quote. (laughs) So one of my favorite points in this chapter relating to power is when Gryffindor obviously wins the House Cup. So the transfer of power goes from Slytherin to Gryffindor House. And we know from previous chapters that McGonagall's like, I can't look Severus Snape in the face again and concede. Like, you guys have to, like, bring it for mama type of situation, right? So <laughs> on page 306 to 307 of my scholastic first edition of Harry Potter, says, uh, Snape was shaking Professor McGonagall's hand with a horrible forced smile and how the tables have turned, right? So... All throughout this book, we've seen, like, Snape be like, haha, I'm gonna win the House Cup again, McGonagall, right? And she's, like, now she's enjoying <laughs> that power, and with that power comes the knowledge that the other person is probably forcing their smile, right? The power to gloat a little bit. It's the power to sort of lord that over them. Yeah, it's the power to be like, now I can look at your, at your smug face all I want without feeling, like, shame and guilt. Because I won. <laughs> at the last 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 minute and i think but i also think that it's sort of like (laughs) cruel but hilarious the way that that final scene plays out you know the slytherin banners were already waving it had been decided and they're they've already celebrated likely and then you know dumbledore comes in and it's like you know change in scenery it's all the gryffindor colors like what a fucking blow like damn well and also that also speaks to the power that Dumbledore has right as the headmaster to like make and break these rules to be like "Mm, guys uh it's not over yet because we hadn't had our banquet so the school year's not over there's some last minute situation that has to be like accounted for and honestly like how much of that was not pre-planned if we come back to my earlier theory that Dumbledore has been teaching the trio how to cope with the trials that they were going to overcome to ultimately defeat Voldemort at the very end of the book. Like he probably knew that he was going to be, you know, awarding some last minute points at the end of the semester. I don't know. I just can't help but feel like there's a soft spot in, in Dumbledore's heart for Gryffindor house. Um, And maybe, and maybe it's just because Harry's in it, you know, but yeah, no, of course, but it's just, you know, it's great because we're talking about power and he has the power to do all those things because Hogwarts is independently or mostly independently run. Well, and let's come back to the politics of communities on that, though, and like talk about being like in the audience as like a Hufflepuff or a Ravenclaw or especially a Slytherin. Like you're just like, OK, so the rules just mean nothing like, you know, I like w- what and and how will I ever be, you know, in a situation where I will be like awarded 50 points for like bravery, like what? I think it also maybe inadvertently could create rifts between houses that, um, that 
aren't aren't and I don't know it's not like unnecessary isn't the word I'm looking for but it's like Dumbledore's stirring the pot he's there stirring the pot yeah he's just like the master architect you know and he enjoys that he does enjoy that yeah puppeteering Hogwarts speaking of Dumbledore uh what character do you see as representing the politics of power and why well for me it's Quirrell again um He's the kind of person who wants to have the kind of power that Voldemort does, but his greed blinds him to the fact that he's being used. And, and it comes from the kind of power that seeks to use others by, by using um, Harry to, to appease Voldemort. Quirrell was attempting to get more power, and Voldemort is using Quirrell to return back to his full state and so it's this power of use using others that um ultimately fails both of them for me it's harry because he um got the stone out of the mirror by wanting to have it and not use it and that's kind of the the equivalent of like like having power but not wanting to wield it in a selfish way love it yeah, love it. Well, and that that goes like to Dumbledore's uh, whole thing. Like that was rather clever of me, wasn't it? Like only the person who wanted to get it and not use it could get it, <laughs> because he has his own struggles with power and wanting power, which we'll get to talk about a lot. Which I look forward to greatly. But coming back to what you and I had talked about earlier too, in that example that you're giving with with Harry and the stone, it's he's empowered. Um, he's in an empowered state because he has learned how to use the mirror of Erised. Dumbledore has taught him not just how it works perfunctorily, but how to channel his desires beyond himself, right? And that was, that's like, and therefore he was, like you're saying, able to then physically have the stone transported into his pocket. So I think I, I, I like that scene a lot. I'm glad you picked that up. All right, so... Moving forward with season two and the rest of the books, what broader themes or threads that you see right now do you want to continue tracing, Erin? Largely this idea of good versus evil. Um, Look at Snape as an example. We find out that, in fact, he was trying to save Harry from Quirrell. The conspiracy theory falls apart. However, we do get confirmation, Roger, Roger, that Snape hates him and Snape then becomes a very complicated character he obviously had the right intentions but he's human and because of his past experiences with Harry's father he can't help but treat Harry differently and frankly worse than he treats everyone else which is also frankly shitty but you know there's a he gets it worse (laughs) than everyone else so I, I I'm really interested in looking at how the binary of good versus evil gets complicated and how we think about characteristics or traits or decisions or behaviors that define good versus bad or good versus evil. Well, and I definitely think that as we move forward with the books, that distinction gets a little bit more nuanced than in this first book, which is kind of very like stark, you know, good is here, bad is there. Yes, yes. Well, I am curious to see if we can extract more information through close reading about how the professors get along with each other. 
Um, I'm hoping there's like a dramatic situation behind the scenes that we could gleam in our, you know, rereading of these books. Oh, I like that. Yes. Okay. I, I, and I obviously haven't been giving the professors a lot of play in their, uh, in their interactions with each other, but coming back to your, or your, your earlier deep dive quote, there's a lot of passive aggressiveness that happens between the professors. That is hilarious, hilarious. And then when there is outright confrontation, also hilarious, but also very ugly. Um, yeah, that'll be a really fun one to trace, Adrian. Also, it kind of mirrors like the world of academia where these things happen all the time. Oh my God, the politics of academia. <laughs> a podcast for another time. This week's featured voicemail comes to us from Nat. Hello, my name is Natalie. I'm from Portland, Oregon. Uh, my favorite quote is by Dumbledore in Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Um, he's eating uh, every flavor beans, and he says, I was most unfortunate in my youth to come across a vomit-flavored one, and since then I'm afraid I've lost my liking for them. But I think I could be safe with a nice toffee. He eats it. Mm, alas, earwax. Thank you, Nat, for such a funny message. We love that quote from Dumbledore. What do you think, Erin? Classic Dumbledore. And I think this perfectly caps, uh, captures his, um, his sort of charm and his personality and his essence. It's, um, he's kind of peculiar, but endearing and lovable and in all of these un, kind of unnameable ways. <laughs> yeah, no, this is classic Dumbledore. I agree. I, I love this so much. And I love that this is the quote that, um, you know, represents Natalie's favorite chapter, favorite passage in the Sorcerer's Stone. It because we don't really see a lot of Dumbledore in this first book, and we certainly get more visibility later on in the series. But I think if you if you're picking up on on that particular quote, you're picking up on Dumbledore himself. So I'm really glad that she that she brought that to us. And Dumbledore is going to be a really fun character to unpack later. And and I don't even know what politics will we'll have to kind of frame our discussions around. They're going to be really fun. Yeah, I can't wait. So listeners, we look forward to hear. Oh, shit. <laughs> so listeners, we look forward to hearing from you. You can call and leave us a voicemail at 915-996-1699, where you can tell us your favorite Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone quote, or your thoughts about a previous episode. If we use your voicemail, we'll send you an Occupolitics sticker when we use your message. You can also email us at info at Occupolitics.com or tweet us at Occupolitics. Listeners, let's let's go to our customary question: What we've been consuming lately, Adriana? What media have you been consuming lately? I've been consuming Grace Anatomy. Thank God for Shonda Rhimes; she is amazing. It's like just like a small disconnect from the world, 
but also not too lowbrow to, you know, admit to? I'm I'm a huge Grace fan. I, you know, I've watched every season. Um, I have not watched the latest because I was not like super. I know eight listeners. Adriana just gave me a shocked face. And I, she, I guess she drew I back in in shock. <laughs> um. <laughs> I'm fainting, you guys. I am fainting. I was not impressed with the last season. Um, I don't like the characters that they are casting like as Meredith's love interest I'm just like I would rather just like see her be this like I don't know just Meredith right now I guess or just like bring Gastrina Yang back for god's sake I don't know maybe I'm just like maybe there's just too little of the uh the cast and crew that I love they just like chipped maybe that's it they've just like chipped away too many people that I love like there's only so many deaths that I can take in that show of people that I love well you know it's just actors have to move on and that's what happens in all these series that run for like more than 10 years false Adriana this is real life that they're recording (laughs) and these characters (laughs) also okay so here's something I kind of love and hate about Shonda Rhimes if an actor like steps out in their personal life or slights her, she will take pen to paper and just write them out of the show. Yeah. Yeah. And I I kind of have to admire that. I'm like, yeah, that's again, going back to it, that's real power, girl. <laughs> well, as like as somebody who, yeah, as somebody though who's just like gotten attached to quite a few of them, I'm just like, you're killing off the ones that I really, really love. Like we, I could have seen Alex Karev go seasons ago, Shonda, like, FYI, you know, but... Maybe he's just, like, a really nice guy, like, the actor in real life. Right, right. That's probably, yeah, that is probably what's going down. Well, I have been watching uh, The L Word, classic, Showtime classic. I'm very anxious for the reboot. I keep trying to, like, I check weekly uh, to see if there's any news updates on what the status is of that. Um... I did read recently, though, that in looking to write the the reboot for the first season, that they would maybe be pretending like they had amnesia for the last season of The L Word, um, i.e. Jenny would be alive again, which is like, honestly, like, not to put too fine a point on it, but like, I was looking forward to the reboot because I was fairly certain that Jenny would not be there, so... <laughs> I'm just like, we're going to like, how are you going to bring her back from that? Seriously? I mean, I guess it was kind of ambiguous as to whether or not she was dead, but I don't know. It was pretty heavily implied, in my opinion. They did that with the like one Grace reboot, you know, like uh, the last in the last episode, they kind of like moved them forward and had them have kids. And those kids ended up like meeting and marrying each other and blah, blah, blah. So they pretended it was like Karen's dream. (laughs) like a drunken dream that karen had oh my god they're like no that never happened oh yeah well that's creative i guess Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Akio Politics. That's all we have for today. But 
We will be back next week discussing the politics of identity as it pertains to the entire first book with special guest Dr. Angel Matos. Until then, politics managed. find us online at www.akiopolitics.com. That is A-C-C-I-O-P-O-L-I-T-I-C-S.com, where you can find links to our social media and notes on each episode. Please rate and review us on iTunes so we can reach more listeners. Tell all your Potterhead friends about this podcast, unless you totally hate us. You can call and leave us a short voicemail at 915-996-1699. This episode has been produced by Adriana Wilson and Aaron Barrio. Our logo was created by House 407 at www.house407.store. Our theme music was crafted by the very talented Kayla Sluka, who is also a badass photographer. Check her out at www.treasuredroots.com. things to say about this podcast yeah they're just like honestly why aren't we in there talking about this with you like i got a lot to say about power you guys everyone was talking back at me (laughs) as she does as she does she's like what yes (laughs) mom okay so What was it that I wanted to say?